Well, what a treat it is, and it has already been to be here with you at this regional chapter of the Gospel Coalition. Steve, thank you so much for um, the invitation, and I just want you all to know that even though my wife is not here, um, I had the privilege of meeting up with Kevin and his wife Trish as we met uh, on the way here um, in New York, and then when I got here and I saw Tim and his wife, I found myself lamenting the fact that I didn't do everything I could do to make sure that Bev was here with me as well. It just ends up that the timing of our family situation um, was such that it didn't make sense for her to come. And yet, even though my wife is not with me, I want you to know that Steve offered the whole Anne of Green Gables thing to us as well. Um, we just did not have the privilege of taking a, uh, him up on that opportunity, at least this time. So I trust that we'll have a chance in the future to come and visit and be here uh, at least as a couple. And I want to say this morning that it is particularly exciting to see just the emergence of a regional chapter of the Gospel Coalition here in Atlantic Canada. I continue to be so grateful for what God is doing with the Gospel Coalition, with its goals of encouraging pastors and strengthening local churches for faithful gospel proclamation. It's just great to see that happening here now in, in this part of Canada. And so I'm very grateful for the privilege of being here, very much anticipating God's goodness to us uh, as we've been together already. And, and I'm especially excited, given the theme that has been selected for our three days together, this idea of magnificent holiness growing in the grace of the gospel, this idea of exploring the connection the relationship between the gospel and our sanctification, seeing how the gospel functions in our pursuit of holiness. In fact, let me just right from the start tell you my basic premise for, for my three sessions today and tomorrow morning. It's really quite simple. Christians grow in holiness by the power of the gospel not by their own strength. Christians are in union with Christ and their growth flows from this union, not from their own efforts. The gospel is the vitality, the vitalizing power for holiness. And to communicate that, I have the privilege over the sessions that I have of doing this extended exposition, three messages from Romans chapter 6 is kind of my contribution. I was talking with Kevin last night, and we were so just encouraged by the way that Steve and Josh and Ryan have put this together, each one of us coming at this theme from a slightly different angle. Many, uh, many of the same things will be said over these sessions but what a privilege for us to be able to repeatedly speak this same truth of the gospel being what is the ground of, the fuel for, the vitality behind and in our pursuit of holiness. Now obviously there are many places that we might go in scripture to explore that theme. But if I had to choose one place to go to address this theme of the relationship between the gospel and our sanctification, one place to camp out, it would be Romans chapter 6. I believe Romans chapter 6 is in our Bible to help us think clearly about sanctification. And God intends this chapter not just to help us understand some things about sanctification, but to actually bear the fruit of sanctification in our lives that becomes so evident as you trace through this chapter. And so my basic desire over the three sessions that I have is to do this kind of slow exposition of Romans chapter 6 with an eye 
a particular eye toward your pastoral ministry, your leadership in the local church, your shepherding, but all the while wanting us to benefit immediately from God's word in our own pursuit of holiness. I'm desiring that for myself this morning. My desire for us is to be under the authority of God's word, personally receiving the nourishment and the encouragement of God's word. So we're just going to proceed fairly systematically through this chapter in three sessions. Obviously, we won't be able to cover everything that is in Romans chapter 6. This is a very rich, as you know, a highly concentrated passage of God's Word. We could, we could profitably spend months preaching through Romans chapter 6. Men have done that, as you know. But we'll do our best in these three sessions to cover kind of the waterfront, see the main things that Paul is teaching here about how the gospel functions in our sanctification, how the gospel bears the fruit of actual holiness in our lives. So three sessions this morning. I've entitled this message, Gospel-Fueled Sanctification. It's a phrase that I borrowed from Jerry Bridges. We could also call this first session, Where Sanctification Begins. And then this afternoon and tomorrow morning, two sessions I've entitled Practical Sanctification, Strategies for Holiness, Part 1 and Part 2. And that reflects, I believe, Paul's agenda in this chapter. It reflects the development of this chapter, this opening foundational section, and then Paul goes on from there with instruction on very practical exhortation about our pursuit of holiness. So with that kind of overview in front of us, let's just ask God for his help as we proceed to look at his word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we do thank you this morning for this book that you've given us. Thank you that you are a speaking God. And that you've not left us kind of adrift on a sea of uncertainty. But you've given us a clear word. And God, your word is living. And so we know that what you have spoken by that, you will continue to speak this morning. And so as we come to your word, Father, we have... We have reason to approach your word with a sense of fear and trembling. Your word says so clearly that when words are many, sin is not absent. And Father, I'm about to speak many words. And so I pray that you would help me in my speaking to speak in a way that is pleasing to you. And God, I pray that you would help each one that is here this morning in their hearing, to hear in a way that is pleasing to you. God, I pray that we would, with reverence, with appropriate fear and trembling, receive your word. But Father, there is also reason for us this morning to just be filled with eager anticipation. All of the ways that you speak about your word, it's a sword, it's a hammer. It's like fire, it's like, it's like a seed, it's like rain. All of these images that speak about effectiveness. And so God, once again, we just ask you, will you accomplish your purposes through your word this morning? We pray that you would give your word success in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we turn specifically to Romans chapter 6, let me just supply what I hope will be a useful working definition of sanctification. This isn't original with me, but I think it's useful partly because of its simplicity. Sanctification, as we're talking about it in these few days, 
not our positional sanctification, but progressive sanctification. Sanctification, simply put, is a Christian actually becoming more and more like Christ. Sanctification is a Christian actually becoming more and more Christ-like. To borrow Paul's language from Romans chapter 8, it's a Christian becoming more and more conformed to the image, the character of Jesus Christ. It's a Christian becoming in his thoughts, in her thoughts, in his affections, in his speech and actions, more and more like Christ. Thinking about things the way Jesus thinks about things. Feeling about things the way Jesus feels about things. Speaking and acting more and more like Jesus would speak and would act. That is God's purpose. According to Paul in Romans chapter 8, that is God's purpose for us. That we would be conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ. J.I. Packer says it this way, sanctification is a divinely wrought character change freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. Sanctification is a divinely wrought character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. See, unlike our justification, which happened the moment you placed your faith in Christ, at that moment, once for all, you were completely justified, declared by God, completely forgiven, no longer under condemnation, fully reconciled to God, brought fully into this new covenant relationship with God, complete with a brand new heart. Unlike that, but anchored in that, our sanctification is a process. It's a lifelong process whereby we are being changed. Decreasingly marked by patterns of sin, increasingly marked by patterns of righteousness, and God is absolutely committed to that process. It's His purpose. He didn't rescue us from drowning, kind of to just leave us shivering on the shore. No, he intends to complete the work, to bring it all the way to perfect completion. He intends to sanctify those whom he justified. He desires and intends for us to walk in ever-increasing holiness. In fact, I want to suggest this morning that sanctification, pursuing sanctification, is to be the main occupation of the Christian. It is the central issue. It should be the central issue of the Christian life. You have been saved for a purpose, and that is to live a holy life. Yes, the chief end of man is to glorify God, but... Your holiness is the main way you glorify God. And the other things that we do in our lives to bring glory to God, if they are cut off from this pursuit of holiness, will not bring glory to God. Our marriages, our parenting, our pastoring. So our New Testament tells us clearly and regularly we are to pursue Holiness, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that Kevin just so wonderfully unpacked for us last night. We are to make it our aim, Paul says, to please God, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We are to live in such a way that pleases God. Paul says it ever so clearly in Ephesians 5, 10. Find out what pleases God. We are to train ourselves for godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Godliness, Christ-likeness, is to be our primary goal. What sort of people ought we to be, Peter asks, in lives of holiness 
and godliness. 2 Peter 3.11, we are to pursue holiness, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What a great verse that is. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If we've spent time in our Bibles at all, I think we have at least a sense of the priority of this in God's Word, living increasingly holy, increasingly Christ-like lives. And how that happens is what Romans 6 is all about. How that happens is what Romans 6 is in our Bibles to teach us. Romans 6 gives extended focused attention to this issue to this issue of our sanctification now given the importance of this in God's purpose given the importance of it in our lives God through the apostle Paul dedicates this careful focused presentation of truth this is so helpful for us so helpful for our people. That's what Romans 6 is. It's helpful truth, truth about sanctification that is designed to bear the fruit of sanctification in our lives. And so we are resting in these days in the confidence, in our confidence in the ability of God's Word to accomplish His purpose. So now let me ask you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 6. And in this first session, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 11. So follow along as I read. This is God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the question I want us to consider in this first session is the question of where sanctification begins. I want to make sure that we get ourselves squarely on the right foundation. Romans 6 begins assuming that something has already happened. As soon as you start reading, you can sense that. Look at that very first phrase of verse 1. What shall we say then? Clearly, he's referencing something he has just covered. Paul has just finished laying something out in chapter 5. And of course, what Paul has just laid out in chapter 5 is the great truth of justification. Romans 6 is built on the foundation of justification. This chapter, which is all about sanctification, chapter 6, is built on, resting on, the truth of of justification. Now I know in one sense this is just theology 101, but the implication of this for our pursuit of holiness and the implication of this for our pastoral ministry, helping others 
in their pursuit of holiness is, is just enormous. Sanctification depends entirely on the fact that something else has already happened. What has happened? Look back at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul comes to the end of this, this opening section of the book of Romans, this letter to the church in Romans, chapters 1 through 5. He comes to the end of that with this really radical kind of statement emphasis on justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and all of Romans 6 assumes that. And you can see that assumption operating throughout chapter 6. In verse 4, for example, Paul talks about newness of life. There is a newness of life in which we are to walk. Something has already taken place. In verse 11, he speaks of, a, of us now being alive to God. Something has already happened. In verse 13, he tells us we've been brought, we've been brought from death to life. You see, something profound has happened. Some profound, God-wrought work has taken place. The emphasis here in these opening verses of Romans chapter 6 falls so clearly and so heavily on what Christians are because of what God has done. This is one of the classic cases of the profound New Testament indicative. God has done something. All believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. All believers are dead to sin. All believers are, they now have new life in Christ. I mean, glorious things are true of the Christian, whether he feels them or not. And faith in these objective truths is the starting point for Christian holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the explanation, the explanation of the trouble in most Christian lives is the fact that believers think about salvation in terms of themselves and not in terms of God and what God has done. And all that Paul teaches here in Romans chapter 6 assumes that that work that God has done has already taken place in your life. And if that work hasn't taken place, and you or one of the people in your church is trying to be holy, well, it's, it's like trying to make something grow when there is no life in it. Just imagine two people trying to, trying to grow a tree. One goes out into, let's say, the neighbor's yard and finds a branch, a dead branch that's been broken off of another tree and is lying there in the yard, and he takes that branch. It kind of looks like a tree. He takes that branch over to his own yard, and, and he digs a hole and plants that branch into the ground. The other person finds this little acorn isn't very big, doesn't look like much. In fact, it looks dead. It looks like, it looks like a dead little stone. I mean, it's got this cute little cap on it. The cap's going to fall off. It just looks like a stone. Stick is big. It's visible. It's something you can point to and say it kind of looks like a tree. The seed is little, and you're going to bury it. And so it's not even visible, but there's life in it. And if you wait a year and you go, go back to the place where, where, where these people planted these two different things, there's the stick still in the ground looking like a dead stick, but where you planted the seed, you know what you're going to see there? Have you, have you ever seen a seedling oak tree? I got to see one last year because a squirrel planted one in the middle of our flower garden. And, and it was the most kind of ungainly looking thing. 
this tiny little twig-like trunk, if you can call it that, and then these, these huge green leaves out of all proportion with the tiny little trunk. And, and there they were, they're all green, just doing their kind of photosynthesis thing, taking all the sunlight in and all the nutrients in to make more food so it could grow some more. Listen, I'm just trying to emphasize one very important point here. If a person is not spiritually alive, they can't grow. If you haven't been born again, sanctification isn't even remotely a possibility. And any attempt at sanctification, any attempt at pursuing holiness is going to be either an exercise in futility or self-deception. There isn't, if there isn't, justification and life, as Paul says, Romans 5, verse 18, it is doomed to failure. You can just imagine the frustration of that. You can, can imagine the frustration of someone in, in church, in your church. They're hearing you teach on holiness. Some maybe specific teaching that you're giving on living a holy life. And maybe they have a level of intellectual understanding of the Christian life and they look around and they see what other people are, are doing and so they try and they try and they try and, and there's frustration and so they try harder and then all sorts of things can happen. They can pretend or they can grow cynical or they can get bitter or, or God can do a work in their lives. They can cry out for help. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, save me. And God can do a work. So where does sanctification begin? What needs to happen first? Well, you know what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. We need to be so careful when we hear those words of Jesus in John chapter 3, not to misunderstand what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Sometimes when we hear those words, we might be tempted to think that Jesus is giving a command to Nicodemus, telling Nicodemus something he must do. He's not. He's just stating a fact about something that God must do. He's saying it all starts with God giving you a new life, and you can't proceed until that happens. Apparently, at one point, George Whitfield, while he was preaching, was saying so frequently in this particular sermon, you must be born again, you must be born again, that someone out of frustration, out of the, out of the crowd just yelled out, why do you keep saying that? You must be born again. And Whitfield responded, because you must be born again. It's a work that God does. He caused us to be born again. He made us alive in Christ. So let me just say it again. Apart from this work of God, any attempt at sanctification is futile. This is where sanctification must begin. But when that work has happened, when you have been given life by God, when you have been born again, not only can the work of sanctification begin, the fact is the work of sanctification has begun. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it all the way through to completion. So, now, given this critical truth, let's see the implications that Paul lays out here implications foundational to our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness. In the opening verses of this chapter, Paul spells out the implications of this work that God has done in a word because of the work that God has done. We as Christians are dead to sin and we are alive to God. We are dead to sin and alive to God. Look, right at the beginning of this chapter, Paul raises the question, are we to continue in sin 
And we feel the relevancy of that question, don't we? We read that. I read that. I want to know the answer. What happens now once we become Christians? Will we continue in sin? This is, this is no merely academic question. It, it faces us squarely every day of our lives. But notice, as soon as he raises the question, the direction that Paul goes is not toward moral exhortation. We might be tempted to go there. We might be tempted personally or, or pastorally in our ministering to other people to say something like, of course you're not supposed to continue in sin, and then proceed to give some moral exhortations. In fact, we might be tempted to want Paul to go there. Paul, just tell me what to do. Give me a list of things that I'm supposed to do. But instead of doing that first, Paul provides this foundation for us to stand on. He, he, he gets us on the right footing. The footing that Paul gives us to stand on is all about our connection to what Christ has done. He'll supply some strategies for us later on in this chapter. That's where we're going to get this afternoon and tomorrow morning. But Paul really can't teach us how to do battle with sin until he's gotten us firmly grounded in what Christ has done. So Paul is saying, listen, believer, something is true of you because of what Christ has done. And specifically, because of your union with Christ in that. God has, in His sovereign grace, joined you to Christ such that something is true of you because of what Christ has done and because of our union with Christ in that. And what is that something that is true? Here it is, and this is the main point of these opening verses of Romans 6. We died to sin. We died to sin. Not we should die to sin. No, in our being united with Christ in His death, we died. When Paul says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin, the clear assumption behind that saying is that Christians have died to sin. And the main task of this first chunk of verses in Romans 6, verses 1 through 11, is to communicate that truth, to get it firmly and deeply established in our minds and in our hearts. Look at how Paul starts verse 3. Do you not know? And you can almost hear the tone in Paul's voice as you read that. Do you not know? In other words, this truth is really important to know, and it's, it's kind of somewhat surprising and, and very dangerous when Christians don't know this truth. Dangerous when they're seeking to engage in the pursuit of holiness without having their feet firmly anchored on this foundational truth. Here's the truth. Verse 2. We, he's talking about Christians. That's very clear from verse 3. Those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We are dead to sin. We cannot continue in sin because we died to sin. Paul is just stating a fact. We've got to get this. And it's hard to get sometimes because experientially, it doesn't always seem true so he says it again, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Our connection with Christ that the Holy Spirit spiritually brought about, the, the Spirit of God made that happen, our connection with Christ is a connection to his death. That's what Paul is saying. Now that's not all it is. 
In fact, the purpose of this union with Christ is ultimately to connect us with him in his life. We'll get there in just a moment. But first, there is a union with Christ in death. It's kind of the flow of the first five verses. We can't continue in sin because we died to sin. Our union with Christ was first a union with him in his death. In Christ, in Christ, we believers died to sin. That is a statement of fact. It's something that is true because of what God has done. Now, what what does that mean? Again, I kind of want to know. Because Romans 6 has a lot of very sobering and, and very scary things to say about sin. So when I hear this, this statement that, I, that I'm dead to sin, there's something that rises in me of hope. Because in Romans 6, Paul says a lot of things about sin that I don't, I don't want to be true of my life. I mean, look, look at what he says. Sin is real for each of us. And sin reigned over us. And we were enslaved to sin. And where the reign of sin leads, it leads to to death. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death? Again, verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Again, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. I mean, you'd almost think that Paul had something on his mind. This death, 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 ominously, just ominously repeated throughout Romans chapter 6, just doom, doom, doom. I mean, pretty sobering truths about the reality and consequences of our sin. So we're eager to know. What does it mean that we have died to sin? It seems like pretty promising news. We hear Paul say we were united with Christ in his death, but what does that mean? In what sense have I died? Because quite frankly, sometimes I feel painfully alive to sin. Well, here we turn to what Paul says in verses 6 and 7, where he unpacks this dead to sin truth. Look at what he says in those verses. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let me just call your attention to three phrases in those verses. Two of them in verse 6. One in verse 7, in order to answer the question, in what sense have we died? First, look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. That's the first phrase I want you to see. What does he mean when he says our old self was crucified? Because this is going to help us understand in what sense we died to sin. Well, the old self, the old man, is you. It's not some kind of imaginary overlay. It's you before you were made alive. It's you in your desires, in your affections, in your disposition. It's not just some part of you. No, notice in verse 2 it says... We died. In verse 5, it says we were united with him in death. In verse 8, it says we died with Christ. So I take that to mean that when Paul says in verse 6 that our old self was crucified, that it's me. The me I was before. The me that did not acknowledge God. The me that was committed to running my own life. The me that was kind of trusting in myself focused on myself, living for myself, and all that selfishness which 
was all being worked out in kind of the, the stage of my physical life, which brings us to the second phrase that we need to notice in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What is this body of sin? Well, Paul uses this phrase. He's speaking of our, of our bodies. But he's using it to represent our, our entire lives. Not just our kind of purely physical acts, but all that goes into living our lives. Our thoughts. Our words. Our motives. Yes, including our actions. And he speaks of it as the body of sin because that physical life lived out in our physical bodies is controlled by sin. It's where sin reigned. So when our old self was crucified, our bodies, our lives, as controlled by sin, ended. It was brought to nothing, Paul says. It was killed there in verse 6. The body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, one last phrase here. This one is in verse 7, and this is so crucial. This is where this all comes to clarity, this liberating clarity. Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. There's something ever so interesting, ever so important in that verse. Those words set free. You see them there in verse 7? Do you know what those, what the word behind that really is? It's the word justified. Verse 7, look at it again. For one who has died has been justified from sin. You've been set free in the sense of justified. That is, you've been set free from the penalty, the sentence, your penalty has been paid, your wages have been paid. Now this is really important for understanding Paul's argument here. Notice how verse 7 starts. For. Which means that what Paul just said, that we are no longer enslaved to sin, in verse 6, is true because for we've been set free justified from the penalty of sin. In other words, this is ever so important, you've got to get this, when we died with Christ, when our old self was crucified with Christ by virtue of our union with Christ, in God's way of seeing things, the penalty for our sin was paid. We were therefore set free, justified from sin's penalty, and as a result, remember that word for, as a result, having been set free, according to Romans 6, verses 6 and 7, the enslaving power of sin has been broken. It's precisely because we've been set free from the penalty of our sin that the enslaving power of sin is broken. We are no longer enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been justified, set free from the penalty of sin. Listen, when God by His Spirit spiritually joined you to Christ, that's the result. That's the truth that Paul, that God, wants to make sure we get. Listen, brothers, sisters, Christ's death got something done. Christ's death accomplished something. And as we are united with Christ in His death, the effect of that is the canceling of the penalty of sin and the resultant breaking of the dominion of sin. That's the sense in which we are now dead to sin. Sin no longer has that dominating power. Now, we can't neglect the other side. Not only are we dead to sin, 
but through our union with Christ in his resurrection, we are also alive to God. It's another statement of fact. We are alive to God. That's what Paul is talking about back in verses 4 and 5. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. These are the major theological, ontological implications growing out of this foundation of our justification, growing out of the great work that God has done. God has joined us to Christ so that in his death we died to sin. And that in his resurrection we have new life. There is a union so that what happened to Christ is considered by God as happening to us. God brought about that union by his grace. God forges that union and that union makes what happened to Christ valid for us so that now, as Paul says in verse 11, we are alive to God. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. A new reality is now ours. No longer enslaved to sin. No longer under the dominion of death. Which is why this morning I just, I can't help but feel and I can't help but want to say thanks be to God for sending His Son to deal with my sin so that I am no longer enslaved to sin and afraid of death. Thanks be to God for raising His Son from the dead because while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me draw this to the main point of application for this morning. This is where verse 11 comes in and it's so important to the whole argument of Romans chapter 6 to all that Paul will say in the rest of the chapter. All of these strategies for practical holiness that we're going to explore this afternoon and tomorrow. Verse 11 ends up being so important as we transition from this profound indicative of verses 1 through 10 to the yes exhortation of verses 12 through 23. Here, verse 11 is so absolutely important. Romans 6, 1 through 10 is all statement of fact. This is what has happened. This is what is true. But now, in verse 11... God's Word says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As it is with Christ, verses 9 and 10, so it is with you, verse 11, so you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. We are to consider, to think rightly and accurately. All this, verses 1 through 10, what is true, so think, Paul says. Consider. Make sure that your mind and your belief is traveling in accordance with what is true. Listen to how Jerry Bridges puts this. It is important we understand what Paul is saying here. He's talking about chapter 6, verse 11. It is important we understand what Paul is saying here because he is not telling us to do something, but to believe something. 
We are to believe that we are dead through Christ to both sin's penalty and its dominion. This is not something we make come true by believing it. We simply are called to, we are simply are dead to sin whether we believe it or not. But what Romans 6.11 is clearly calling us to do is to believe it. Because, and here's where there is a key application to sanctification. Because a failure to believe this, a failure to stand on this, is going to cause serious problems in our pursuit of sanctification. Folks, this is where sanctification begins. Romans 6.11. This is gospel-fueled sanctification, which is really the only kind of genuine sanctification there is. Gospel-fueled sanctification. As much as we might want to proceed into the practical strategies of, of pursuing holiness, we will make no progress unless we are standing on this foundation. Believing this is necessary. So let me try to just put this in a very helpful, I hope concise statement. Here it is. Trusting God for what He has done is necessary for trusting God for what He has promised to do. Trusting God for what He has done, which is what Paul is calling us to do in verse 11, is necessary for trusting God for what He has promised to do, which is what Paul is going to address in the remaining part of chapter 6. Folks, make no mistake about this. God has promised sanctification. Sanctification is God's work, and He has promised to do it. Talking about sanctification in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, Paul says He is faithful. He who has called you is faithful, and He will do it. Trusting God for what He has done is necessary for trusting God for what He has promised to do. So just picture in your mind, picture yourself as a little child. Think back. Or maybe parents think of your children. Just picture a little boy, maybe two or three years old, standing at the edge of a pool. He's nervous. He's a little scared. His daddy is in the pool, and his daddy is standing in water that is up to his daddy's chest, and this little boy knows that it's way over his head. His daddy's urging him to jump. He's got his water wings on, and dad's there promising to catch him. He sees his daddy, but he sees the water. He sees his daddy, but he sees the water, and then maybe he doesn't consciously think of all of these things. The times his daddy has picked him up when he's run to him and held him. The times his daddy has tucked him into bed and kissed his forehead and made him feel safe. The times his daddy has held his hand when he was showing him new and interesting things. Maybe all of those things don't consciously come into his mind, but somewhere in that little guy's heart and in his mind, all the accumulated reliances, all the accumulated trustings in his father gather together and exert their influence and help him to take what seems like a great leap of faith. And folks, faith is necessary. Trust is necessary if that little guy is going to enjoy the wonderful sensation of leaping out into a pool of water. And trust is necessary if you are going to enjoy holiness. Trusting God for what He has done positions our heart to trust God for what He has promised to do. You're that little guy. 
You're that little girl. All Christians are that little child with Christ inviting us to jump into the pool of progressive sanctification, to willingly engage in the exhilarating and sometimes scary adventure of change and growth and becoming like Christ. And if we trust him regarding what he's already done, I believe we'll be ready to trust him for what he's going to do. Listen, your spiritual growth is not measured by the fact that you know more of the Bible now than you did this time last year. It's not measured by the fact that you're serving a little more or maybe a little bit more effectively than last year. The true measure of your spiritual growth is whether there is more of the character of Jesus in your life. In the way we live and act and treat others, in the way we talk to our spouses and our children and the people in our churches, in the way we drive, the way we spend our money, all this gives evidence of the reality and the presence of the character of Jesus, bit by bit, becoming, actually becoming more and more like Christ. But this is going to require some trust, some faith in God, Progress in sanctification is going to require some trust on your part and on the part of the people that you are seeking to help in your pastoring because it's God that is at work and you can't see God. And there's going to be plenty that you do see that that could discourage you and could distract you as you're pursuing holiness. So you're going to need trust to engage in sanctification But if you do not trust what God says he's already done, then how are you going to trust God for what he says he will do? Paul says in verse 11, so you also must. Why must? Because if you don't believe this, how will you proceed to trust that God will do his work of sanctification? Trusting God for what he says he's done is necessary for trusting God for what he says he will do and trusting God for what he has done positions our hearts for what he will do in the future. That's why Paul writes Romans 6 the way he does. Romans 6, 1 through 11 is where sanctification begins and therefore what we'll find in Romans 6, 12 through 23, is gospel-fueled, gospel-grounded sanctification. Well, let me conclude with this. The gospel belongs to God. It's His message. It's His truth. Its origin is God's mind. It's communicated through God's Word. Its delivery to us is by God's will, it's all from God. God alone owns and speaks this truth of the gospel. But we must believe it. And we must, as others have said, preach it to ourselves every day. Someone might say to you, you know, you're just, you're just talking yourself into something with all this believing stuff. You're just brainwashing yourself. You know, I've never heard anyone accuse a fourth grader who is memorizing his multiplication tables of brainwashing. Why? Because they're very useful and they're true. It's the same here. This is what God has said about what He's done. It's true and it is ever so useful. In fact, it's necessary for our progress in holiness. So believe this. This work that God has accomplished through Christ for you, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Bring your minds completely into alignment with that reality. Hold that truth. Live in that truth. And then watch your belief in the gospel 
fuel and keep on fueling your growth in a God-pleasing, God-glorifying growth in holiness. To his glory, amen. Amen. Let's pray.